Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, to provide us with local updates on how we're doing with the pandemic here in the Hamilton area, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson will join us. The Ontario Chamber of Commerce is applauding the news that more businesses can prepare to reopen, but how are they going to make that happen? And should the tracking data for COVID-19 be more detailed? Spoiler alert, yes, it should. We'll tell you why. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. With an update on what's happening here in the local area with uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, we're pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, the Chief Medical Officer of Health for the City of Hamilton. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing this morning? I'm good, thank you, Bill. I'm good. Glad to be here today. Good to have you with us again. I hope you guys are holding up in your department. It's been a little hectic for the last seven or eight weeks, obviously, with what's happening. Are you pleased with the way that the numbers are tracking now, Doctor? Yeah, we definitely are. It's uh, We've been seeing sort of under 10 new cases per day, and, and a lot of those are relating back to this um, what we call point prevalence. A survey that we're doing in long-term care homes right now, and we're, we'll be doing with child care uh, staff as well for those that are serving our essential workers. So we're picking up, we are picking up some asymptomatic positives as we go through that, that process. Um, and then we do still have a few cases that are occurring in the community. But we're overall, our number, numbers are stabilizing. We are um, in that flattening of the curve sort of stage, and we definitely want to see us stay there as we go forward. Uh- this seems to be an indication right now, and, and when we look at some of these stats, uh, uh, the focus in, in many instances, of course, is on long-term care facilities right now. Uh, how do you address something like that when it comes to, for instance, testing uh, with staff and with uh, the residents of those facilities? Well, the testing piece has been a, a huge endeavor, of course. You know, we have um, just under 4,000 residents uh, here in Hamilton in long-term care facilities, and uh, we have at least that many staff as well that care for them that, nurses, personal service workers, the people who work um, doing the cooking, the laundry, all of the cleaning that that goes on. And so to do all of that testing is huge. And of course, at the same time, we have uh, staff that are very much dedicated to providing care to those that are living in long-term care. And without families and visitors there to to help and and be around, it it does uh, leave all the more work to be done uh, for those who are providing care. So they are working with us. Of course, their priority is to provide that care. And uh, we're getting about three or four facilities uh, started a day per day. We're done um, six, almost seven of them so far. We're actually at 56% of the tests in residents and staff in long-term care homes now being done, which is ahead of the province's target of, of 50% that was set for Friday. So we've been doing really well with it. And uh, we plan to have it all completed by next week. So that's uh, that's really good. And, of course, we're on top of that. Anytime we do see a symptomatic individual, the home is going ahead and doing testing. And if anybody is found to be COVID positive, we do additional testing around them um, to make sure if there's any spread that's gone on. So big endeavors that are going on. And uh, we've started this as well in child care after an outbreak in uh, a child care in Toronto that had uh, that was serving essential service workers. So all of the child care staff that are serving our uh, our essential service workers are going to be tested over this weekend as well. There has been some 
discussion. I guess there's a lot of discussion about every aspect of this, but remember initially, I think you and I had this discussion about children and the impact COVID-19 was going to have on them. And uh, we said, well, maybe not so much, but they're usually, they could be carriers, probably are carriers, which is one of the reasons why uh, I think the province moved forward to, to shut down schools in this area. Quebec is starting to open those up again. Now I'm starting to read some evidence that says, well, maybe they're not carriers so much anymore. Maybe they're not uh, as, as problematic as they can be. Uh, what, what, I, I know the jury's still out on this and it's a, a decision that's going to be made by the province, but what are you hearing about this and what, what has your, uh, your work on this shown you? So we're still sort of following along and seeing what the evidence shows. We haven't reached any conclusions, of course, yet, but I'll always look scanning the evidence to see what is going on. So as we see, um, you know, things opening back up, that'll help us as well to understand what happens when schools come forward. Is it the kids who are potentially um, transmitting it? Do we see amongst the adults any cases and any concern there? You know, I don't know for this year whether we'll actually get to that point of, of having things, you know, back to school Certainly, that's the hope that we have a few weeks back, but I'm not sure we're there yet. It all depends on how things go um, as we go forward. The really interesting part will be once we start getting these what we call seroprevalence surveys done. So this is where we take, um, we do blood tests or use blood from tests that are otherwise uh, being done to look at how many people have been infected with uh, COVID-19 and uh, whether or not they knew that they had been infected. So that will really be the test when we get to see how many people have been infected, at what ages are they being infected. And so those tests are just being um, perfected now. Uh, the surveys have begun elsewhere, and we're just getting finalization of those tests here in Canada, and then we're really looking forward to those seroprevalence surveys being done. I know we're looking at what's happening in Quebec, and there are some jurisdictions in the states, of course, where uh, the schools have reopened. And and I guess we're looking with anticipation now as to just what's going to happen. Is is anything going to happen, or is it just going to be? Well, I guess we kind of blew that one, but which which would be good news, by the way, uh, that that you know the children aren't going to be adversely affected by that. Let me get back to the testing, if I could, Doctor Richardson, because that's another area of well, some controversy in some jurisdictions. Uh, and, and I know that uh, even uh, Dr. Harvey, of course, who you work with in public health here, uh, was on record the other day and got into a little hot water, at least some people thought he did anyway, by suggesting that, that maybe uh, mass testing is not as, uh, as crucial as some people seem to think. Uh, there are some people that want to see everybody tested. And I don't know how practical that is, probably not. But what's your read on this about, about continuing with this? Because there seemed to initially be a rush that we've got to get testing done. We've got to get testing done. Uh, some of the pol- politicians, anyway, seem to have backed off. What, what's the view of public health on testing? Well, testing is an absolutely critical part of the strategy to control COVID-19. If we don't know what is happening out there, if we don't know who's got it, then we don't know what's happening with the virus and the extent to which it's, uh, it's spreading. And so testing for sure is really important. It's going to stay a backbone of our, of our strategy. We know already we've broadened testing, you know, absolutely for healthcare workers, frontline workers, people who are essential services, essentially anybody who's symptomatic at this point, if they, um, if they're feeling they have symptoms compatible with COVID-19 and those symptoms as well have been opened up as we started to understand more and more about this virus that, you know, you can't, it can be related to diarrhea and gastrointestinal system, uh, gastrointestinal symptoms, um, as well as more subtle signs of cold and those sorts of things. And so absolutely, if you have any questions about that, you know, call up your family physician and go through them or call up public health, you can come through us 
and we'll look at getting you into the assessment center. Um, in terms of, of understanding a test, though, we have to know that it's really helpful in somebody who has symptoms. It helps us know whether it is COVID-19 that's causing those symptoms because it's a very good test. For somebody who's asymptomatic, the challenge is that it uh, only tells us what's going on at that moment in time. So they are they could be negative at the moment and they could be positive the next day because of, they've been exposed to COVID and it was just waiting to uh, to show itself or, you know, because they've been exposed since then. So that kind of survey helps us to understand what's going on in long-term care facilities and understand what is there. But that's the extent of what it does. It doesn't help us to, you know, often people think, well, now I'm cleared. I don't have COVID, so I'm kind of, I'm fine to go on. Well, it doesn't do that. You could still be incubating it, and the test isn't positive yet. So we have to have to use the test really wisely. Um, we do need to use them to understand what is happening, and that's the reason for those uh, those surveys in long-term care where we knew we were having significant impacts and wanting to get a handle on that. Um, but going forward, you know, there'll still be some of these surveys that go on. Hopefully we'll get to that zero survey that we talked about just a moment ago. But absolutely, if people are symptomatic, it's going to remain a cornerstone of the control measures that are used. There's, there's so much science going on here and so much studying, which we obviously need to find out here because this is a, a new phenomenon, this virus, uh, COVID-19. And when we talk about data, and that's uh, obviously there was an epidemiologist from Ottawa that I, I know was concerned about the inconsistencies with the reporting mechanisms that different regions will use. And we've heard this in the states too. Different states are using different mechanisms. Uh, down the road, I, I, we, it is what it is for now, but is, is, is there a, an, a benefit to have a consistent methodology that we can compare the statistics in British Columbia in Ontario and say, yeah, we're talking on the same song sheet here? Yeah, absolutely. Methodology is one of the things that gets us all the time in terms of do we use exactly the same test? Do we test this, you know, according to the same criteria? You know, how do we, do we have probables as well as confirmed um, cases? So that's always a bit of a bugaboo in, in tracing any disease, whether it's this one with COVID-19 or others that have been long established. And so we need to understand those things and be able to, um, to translate between different ways of doing it. Of course, here in Ontario, we have such a large population, you know, 13 million people, that it, it gives us a really good basis to understand the disease. And so, you know, we don't need to worry too much about whether it's exactly like everybody else's, but it does help in terms of understanding, you know, broader patterns of what goes on in Canada, what goes on around the world, um, and to learn from others. So that's why we have people at the national level. There's a, uh, a few committees that meet at the national level to try and ensure consistency across Canada. And of course, we have WHO helping to do that around the world. I know we're kind of getting into the short strokes here, but I mean, part of the the, the concern that I think that, that was raised about the the inconsistency in the testing is is what is a COVID death? And I know that you know, and, and, and as we've talked about, I mean, if you had COVID and you died, did you die of COVID nineteen? This reminds me of the debate that was going on years ago when when a lot of people were dying of AIDS. Uh, does AIDS kill you? Well, not well. It depends. <laughs> and what it does is ruins your immune system, and pneumonia can kill you. But I mean, was it an AIDS-caused death? We're, we're kind of getting into the tomato-tomato thing. But the reality is, is if the, the fact, I guess, the bottom line here, <clears throat> excuse me, is that it, you did have you a positive test for COVID-19. 
which has an impact on your body. And we've already seen from some of the people, I guess, doctor, that have suffered through this, uh, that it can do a lot of things to you. Pneumonia can be a problem. Blood clots can be a problem. There's so many different things. And we're learning, I guess, almost daily now about some of the other uh, problems it can cause in your body. Yeah, that's right. I wanted to, I want to come back to something you said first, which is getting down to the short strokes with this. And I think it's really important that as we look at things and, and opening things up as we're starting to gradually do and we're seeing the flattening of the curve, we are still very much in the midst of this, of this virus and what's going on with it. And we've done yeoman's work across this community, across the province, across the country to bring it under control. And we need to make sure we maintain these gains that we have made. So continuing to practice good infection control measures, you know, washing your hands, not going to work if you're sick, the physical distancing, those are all going to continue to be a backbone as we go forward. And, uh, and of course, we're concerned and looking for, you know, what happens to disease rates, what happens to death rates as, uh, as we start to open things up a, a little bit more. Um, and then again, you know, wondering if there might be a second wave as we do that. So just, I always want to make sure we're, we're not thinking, you know, we're kind of just letting everything go because it's so very important to maintain what we have done. Uh, you know, turning to the death piece, that is, um, you know, we're learning absolutely about this virus all the time. And that is where sharing around the world has been fantastic and learning quickly. You think it's only, we're only in our fifth month since we first recognized this virus. Um, in the world. And so that's pretty incredible what we've learned in that period of time. And, um, you know, we've developed so many protocols, guidance, you know, whether it's for long-term care homes and hospitals or thing, work that public health does, or now we've got 60 guidelines out there around what business can do in Ontario. And we're all, of course, learning um, from each other and, and, and developing a lot of these things in consultation with, you know, national committees and international committees. But, Deaths in particular, we um, we work with the coroner's office and uh, our chief coroner for Ontario released some guidelines for coroners uh, so that we can look at, at classifying those deaths. And we have a very structured classification system so that we can say what somebody died of, what contributed to that death. And we do work with them to make sure that any testing is done that might need to be done. Um, if there's a suspicion that somebody has COVID-19, of course, if there's not, there's no reason to go through that that protocol, but we work with them to, so that we can classify these things well. So we're going to continue to learn a lot about this virus as we go forward. And, uh, you know, of course, we're all making the best decisions we can with the information we've got right now. Absolutely. Uh, quick question. I got an email about this yesterday, and I, I set this aside. And wanted, I knew you were going to come on today, so I wanted to ask you about this. Uh, somebody concerned about the fact that, look, at, uh, she's being asked to go back to work. Apparently, her place of business is going to be opening up, according to the new stuff from uh, the province that was announced yesterday. And she says, is it safe? I mean, you know, why is it different than it was six weeks ago? I'm afraid to go in there because there are still going to be people that are carriers uh, that could be asymptomatic, et cetera, like this. So I, why am I being asked to go back into basically the same situation that existed when they closed the stores in the first place? Uh, can you do something, doctor, or tell us something that could assuage your concerns? Absolutely. You know, she's, she's raising good questions, and she needs to raise those questions, and, and she needs to talk with her employer about what the conditions are going back in because it shouldn't be the same conditions um, going back in that she may have experienced in, in you know, January or December or February. Because um, if we've gotten to know more about this and understand what we can do, there's a lot of guidance that has been put in place. It does, you know, most of it hinges on some very straightforward things. It, it hinges on the, the physical distancing, the infection control measures, washing your hands regularly, cleaning surfaces, using contactless payment, 
Um, all of those things are, are essential in terms of opening these things back up. And so that discussion needs to be had by employers with their employees, make sure that those, uh, those measures are put in place, that people understand them, that if there's a challenge in doing them, that they look at alternate ways to do business. And so there's a lot of creativity that's required of our businesses. They've been wonderfully creative over the last couple of months. And I'm sure that there's, there's a lot of energy to do that as we move forward with a desire to get back to work and to, to open things back up. Yeah, I'm sure that when she goes through the doors whenever they do reopen, that's going to be a different-looking workplace than it was when they closed them a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time today. Uh, always great to get your insight and, and some information about this. Uh, stay well, and we'll talk again soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Bill. You too. Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, the Chief Medical Officer of Health here for Hamilton. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, uh, Premier Ford announced that uh, they're going to loosen some of the restrictions uh, a little bit, and that was good news. This is what he had to say. As of Saturday, May the 9th, at 12.01 a.m., hardware stores, safety supply stores will be allowed to reopen. This means people will be able to shop in stores as long as these businesses follow strict public health measures to protect staff and customers. Well, that's that's great news, especially in my situation. I mean, you know, we're broadcasting from home here, and I'm doing the self-isolation. I, I couldn't find a light bulb yesterday. We had <laughs> a couple of them burned out at the same time, one upstairs, one downstairs. We have no one in the house, and I figured, oh, I can't go over to Home Depot. Well, I can now on Saturday. Uh, in the meantime, we'll be in the dark, I suppose. But it is good news. Uh, joining us to talk about this and the implications it's going to have, uh, the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Rocco Rossi, of course, is the uh, president and CEO of the uh, Chamber. Rocco, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Pleasure, Bill. Hope you and yours are safe and healthy. We are doing well, thanks very much, aside from the burned-out light bulbs. But now that we're going to open the hardware stores, I'm, I'm a happy man. Uh, this is this is good news. It seems as if we're starting to get back. I don't know if they're ever going to get back to normal or whatever normal is going to be, but it's got to be good news for, for retailers, I would think, Rocco. Uh, absolutely. But, uh, you know, again, this all has to be done extremely cautiously. It's not the $64,000 question. It's the $64 billion question. Um, question because the last thing you want is to uh, to open, cause enormous spikes, and then have people uh, go back into the foxhole. Um, the reality is, absent a vaccine, we are going to have to coexist with COVID for a considerable period of time. And um, so we're never going to be able to promise people that there will be no more infections and no more deaths. What we need to be able to give people confidence in is that we have zero tolerance for incompetence, that every step that can be taken is being taken to keep people safe. So that involves much more testing, much more tracking and tracing capability that has to be coordinated at a national level, much more access to PPE up until now, uh, rightfully so, uh, PPE has been focused on getting it to our frontline healthcare workers. As you open up the economy, in order to give confidence to employees and to customers, you're going to have to get PPE into those stores, into those uh, factories, et cetera, as you open. We're going to need much more training. The other day, the Minister of Labor rightfully and importantly laid out 65 
guidelines in terms of how to operate the business as you reopen. And relatively few businesses um, could recite those 65 guidelines. So we need to be able to drive that down, make it very simple, particularly for small and medium-sized businesses that don't have an HR department, don't have training. How do we make it simple? How do we get them the tools that they need to reopen? Because even things like PPE, these, these companies have burnt through their cash. Um, and so that's going to be another area where to do it right, to give people confidence, uh, we're, we're, we're have to do it uh, gradually and with support. I got to ask you about that. I mean, you, you're obviously working for the Ontario Chamber and have for a number of years, but uh, of course, in your past life, you dabbled in the political field too, and you know, were very successful in that endeavor too. Are the politicians up to speed with what needs to happen here? Can they can they provide what you've just asked for for the business community? And, and we're not talking about, like you say, the big guys here. Are we talking about yeah. you know the, the small operations here that may say, well, geez, is there a how-to list here? I don't know what I need. Um, look, at, uh, I'll say two things. One, uh, relative to um, a bit of the circus that we've been seeing south of the border, I'm extremely <laughs> proud in how well all levels of government and all parties have been in Canada in coordinating, in, in understanding, in listening, uh, in adjust, adjusting and adapting. But we're still not there yet. Um, again, you know, in a world where there's no playbook, what you need are great players, great teamwork, um, and, uh, and, and we, we, we have to continue to up our game because you could say, like, look, Georgia and Texas uh, have opened. In Georgia, they even included uh, tattoo parlors, mm-hmm. uh, for goodness sake. And what, what we're hearing from the Georgia Ch- Chamber of Commerce is consumers are staying away in droves and employees are still staying away because you need to do things like make people feel safe that there are daycare options for them. What are you going to do with public transit in major centers? It's one thing uh, to reopen in a, in a small town where people can get to everything relatively quickly. It's another thing to open up large operations in the major cities and then uh, be concentrating large densities of people into public transit. So all of these things have to be uh, done slowly so that we contain uh, and manage and keep people's confidence high. Well, absolutely, and, and as long as, as those tools are being provided, I, I know the Premier was, was quite adamant the other day, Rocco, when he said, you know, we're going to have inspectors out to make sure these people are following the rules, uh, but the first thing they need to do is make sure that people that are going to be reopening know the rules and know what needs to right. be done about the PPEs and things of this nature. Hey, where can I get that stuff? I need that for my staff. You know, Give me a phone number. Give me a contact, something like that. There's, there's a lot of work to be done before they open those doors. And that's, and that's precisely why it's got to be done gradually, because quite frankly, right now, if you were to try to open everything up, you don't have enough PPE. You don't have the people trained. Uh, I mean, we had, we had members even among the, the first week of, of openings that were permitted who said, well, it's great. I'm allowed to, to open, but I actually haven't set everything in place yet because I didn't know it was going to happen. It got announced. And now uh, I tried to put some of the things in place, but it's going to take me a few days. So 
let's do this, as the Premier has rightfully said, slowly, gradually, let's measure it, let's track it. Um, the last thing we want is is an enormous spike that takes us back to where we were because I'm not sure the economy and and just people's psychology is going to be able to uh, uh, going to be able to take that. So we really have to do this appropriately. And I I heard your earlier guest, you know, great to try to get things for the Memorial Day or the or the the long weekend, but uh, we're we're playing a long game here. I. Yeah. The other day was my mom's uh, uh, birthday, and it's the first time in my adult life that I was not able to hug and kiss my mom. I looked at her through a window. There's going to be pain, um, but we have to do it so that we have those moments to hug and do business into the future. Rocco Rossi of the Ontario Chamber. Rocco, let's stay in touch over the next few days as this rolls out because we, we want to make sure this succeeds. Uh, all the best to you and your mom. Uh, have a great weekend. We'll talk again soon. Likewise, brother. Take care. Rocco Rossi from the Ontario Chamber. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots of stuff to cover, including uh, a conversation that we had with uh, Dr. Richardson in the first hour about tracking and uh, how different jurisdictions are tracking uh, COVID-19 in different ways. And uh, one of the areas where they're falling short is who is being impacted by this. Uh, Should there be a more detailed tracking on this? Well, the answer, the short answer is yes. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Kojo Dempty, who is the manager of programs for the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion. Uh, Kojo, thank you for the time. I hope you are well today. Yeah, thank you for having me on your show. Well, good to have you with us again. Uh, I, I saw the letters you sent, or uh, the, the the fact that you've, uh, I guess, addressed the medical officer of health a couple of times about about you know boiling down to some of these statistics, drilling down on some of them, and finding out who's impacted. And there's so many different categories. And I got to tell you, Kojo, when I saw this story, at first my impression was I thought they were doing this already, but apparently they're not. Yeah. So uh, yeah, welcome, welcome to our world. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I think that's why we were proactive um, in 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 sending them an email or, or a formal request to say, hey, look, um, we see that on the city of Hamilton COVID website, uh, you have data around age, right? And yeah. so if you're collecting age, there should be other social demographic information that should be attached to um, uh, to to those to that information, right? So whether it's race, gender, income status, location, ward, what, what have you. So I think that was something that uh, we we decided to be proactive. There are a number of other organizations across the province that are also asking their uh, uh, local public health uh, department to look into expanding uh, the data that they collect so that we can actually know uh, what's happening across the city, what's happening in the province. And then there's also organizations that are asking the federal government to do the same because after uh, this is done, we'll have to figure out um, how to address those that have been dis- disproportionately affected. And if you don't have those numbers, how are you going to make the right decisions? 
Well, the reason why I thought they were doing it was because when we watched the, the American coverage of, of how COVID's impacting down there on, on the American uh, news networks, uh, they they seem to have that information. So I, I don't know if it's the network that's doing the analysis or it's the, the governments in those jurisdictions, whether it's New York State or some of the other places that were really heavily impacted by this. They seem to have that breakdown uh, about ethnicity and, and, and color and things of this nature. And and you're absolutely right, Kojo. This is extremely important uh, because you, we know this is going to happen again. I mean, everyone's telling us there's probably going to be a second wave. Uh, there will probably be other viruses, if not COVID, something else. And we need to know how to how to defend ourselves, and we need to know how to prepare the communities and know who's impacted, don't we? Yes, you're right. And I think this is this is a larger problem uh, uh, that's happening in Canada, right? Canada always has this um, uh, myth that racism doesn't happen here in Hamilton, or, or or inequities doesn't happen here in Hamilton and in Canada. So when we are uh, uh, raising these issues, uh, there seems to be pushback. And I think um, it was Dr. Williams who was asked this a couple of months back mm-hmm. and said, hey, are you collecting race uh, data? And he outright said, hey, look, the, the, uh, we don't think the virus is, uh, does any discrimination and everybody is treated the same. And I think that's the kind of mindset that many, some Canadians have and that's why uh, these, this data is not being collected. If you remember, you had me on your show talking about um, when the province asked the, the department, the police department, to also start collecting this data as well. Mm. And yep. there was pushback to on, on that item. So I think it's a general myth in Canada that uh, racism doesn't happen. But then for us, historically, we've known that there are issues of racism in this country on the federal level, provincial, and municipal level. Well, look, at, there's some people that don't want the data because they don't want to hear the story that it's going to tell. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting everyone is like that. I just, I, I'd like to think that some of this is just an oversight, but it needs to be corrected. Because anecdotally, Kojo, as we've seen some of the statistics, and I'll reference again, you know, some of the cities down in the states like New York that seem to be tracking this. We do know that th- that th- these things are impactful, and they do know that it impacts different people, uh, whether it's uh, you know, income levels, whether it's poverty levels, whether it's ethnicity, uh, that there are some, some people that seem more prone to this than others, and others that seem to be able to, to ward the, the virus off. Uh, this, this is information we need to have. Definitely, and even we don't, we don't, we don't even have to uh, look back that much. Ten years ago, uh, uh, the Hamilton Spectator and the Community Foundation released the Red Code, even yep. within Hamilton, we did have uh, 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 um, uh, huge discrepancies in terms of um, uh, health outcomes, right? So if, if even without a global pandemic in the city of Hamilton, we have these huge uh, disparities, then obviously when a pandemic hits, those uh, uh, disparities are going to be exacerbated, and we need to find out how to address these issues. Um, Toronto started collecting this data. They did um, some soft analysis, and they realized that uh, the COVID uh, pandemic is affecting Toronto's low-income immigrant com- communities and areas that are um, th- that that have high imp- unemployment numbers. So sometimes uh, this this seems to be not red- rocket science, but it, it's always hard to get. Uh, uh, government institutions to, to, to do the follow-up and have uh, numbers 
to inform social policy and financial decisions that are going to uh, that are going to have an impact on residents across the country, the providence and municipalities. Yeah, good to know that Toronto's doing this, and, and I, I'm hoping Hamilton follows suit because, again, as I say, if I look at some of the stats, I was watching CNN about this last week, and they were talking about the impact uh, that it was having. And uh, if anybody's watching uh, Governor Cuomo with his daily updates about what's happening in New York State, uh, the information they've got there, Kojo, suggests that the virus is deadlier for people of color. Uh, and there may be other factors involved in that. It could be poverty issues. It could be neighborhoods, things of this nature. Uh, do they have access to some of the tools that we use, uh, the social distancing, uh, you know, self-isolation, things of this nature, masks, all, that, all the things that we have been told that probably would help us in situations like that. Are they available? to them and if not well maybe there's a story to tell there so this is the more information we have the better prepared we're going to be for stuff like this and clearly we weren't prepared for this definitely i've i've said this numerous times i don't think uh, all levels of government were prepared for this and it's also uh shown that we need to invest in social services and invest in people because if we don't do that when these uh, uh um crises hit then now we are left uh, 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 we are left in a situation where we can address these issues look at the amount of of, of money that has already been uh, put towards covid uh, we talked about the universal basic income if that was already in place maybe people might be able to uh, uh, to address some of their their, their 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 living needs but we don't do all of this and then when crises hit then now we are behind the eight ball. So I think it's really time for uh, municipalities, provincial governments, and federal governments to start investing in the social nets and in community-based uh, 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 ways of tackling these issues so that when these things happen in the, in the future, we are able to um, address them uh, in, in a way that uh, serves uh, uh, everyone. I know that uh, as you've had this discussion with your committee, uh, there's some talk about using the anti-racism data standards uh, that uh, from the Anti-Racism Act, of course, here in the province of Ontario. And that was raised with the, with the government, with the Ministry of Health. And, and basically they said, well, we don't do that because uh, they say it could be, well, they gave some lame excuse, I thought it was, about, well, there's, there's privacy concerns about another act. And but there's a way around that, Kojo. I mean, come on, that's, that, that sounds like a pretty flimsy excuse to say we're not even going to bother to try. Yes, and uh, I mean, I, I think uh, you're you're totally right. Uh, this 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 is a this is a, a gross misstep, right? In terms of how we are tracking uh, how diseases affect residents and what can be done to ensure that uh, the public safety of residents is 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 a priority, right? So I think definitely. Um, this was a, a, a huge misstep, and uh, at least we are glad to hear that they are they are going to start looking at uh, collecting such data voluntarily during testing. We're going to continue to push them to say, "Hey, look, um, this shouldn't be a voluntary uh, option. It should be something that should be done so that it can inform uh, 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 some of the recovery discussions that are going to happen." Um, you, we've seen that uh, uh, provinces and government want to reopen, uh, but if you reopen again, uh, who is at higher risk if this uh, uh, virus is to is to come back, right? So again, these these 
socioeconomic and socio-demographic data is hugely important. And organizations such as uh, uh, ATCI and, uh, and others will, will continue to uh, bring this for, forward and, and make sure that uh, our governmental institutions are held accountable and the public interest is, uh, is put on high priority. And all you're, excuse me, all you're asking for here is information. Now, by the way, you're not a lone voice here. Uh, you know, HCCI is, is not the only one. Apparently, 190 organizations across yeah. the province are seeking the same sort of information from the ministry. Uh, I don't see too many health organizations involved in that. That's a little so, so depressing that they haven't involved in this. But nobody's, nobody's pointing the finger and blaming anybody for this. Mm-hmm. Nobody's simply saying, hey, you caused this. Because this is simply saying, look, you're our government. You're, the Ministry of Health is in charge of the public health for this whole province. Please give us the data. That's all we're saying. As a matter of fact, you should have the data yourselves so you can track this and decide exactly what programs could be in place and, and where they might be you know, more effective than they could in other places. Well, you know, the, the fact that they don't want to collect information is, is probably the most troubling part of this. Yes, exactly. And, I, I mean, I'll give, you, I'll give you one example. So um, we watch all these briefings, right, uh, yeah. municipal, provincial, and federal, and they are ASL interpreters now. So prior to the pandemic, we never had ASL interpreters when there was a press conference. Having ASL interpreters at, 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 uh, as a communication tool, right, as a video tool to get information out is also important. Mm-hmm. So if, if, if we don't even know that and we can't uh, uh, address issues around disabilities and what have you, then that means that we are actually marginalizing people. And just by the sheer of not having this information, we're not getting the necessary information to communities and people that need them. Well, as I say, the anecdotal data that we have suggested there is a story to tell here. And uh, I would like to think that our, our elected officials would be saying, well, yeah, we need to hear that story. I mean, because like you say, this is not a one-timer here. This is not going away. We know that COVID is not going away. We're hoping that at some point in a year or so there's going to be a vaccine. Uh, and, and that's long time away, and a lot can happen, a lot can happen between then and now. I, I hope they take the message here, Kojo, and I, I, I want to congratulate you and, and the rest of the folks, of course, at the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion for being adamant about this and sticking to it, uh, because the more voices and the more consistent voices that the government hears on this, uh, hopefully gonna, it's going to cause them to spring into action on this. It's not a difficult thing you're asking for either. No, not at all. It's not a difficult thing for us, again, uh, we think this is something that should be done. It should be routine um, in terms of how uh, uh, government addresses the needs of, of, of people. So we 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 will hope uh, that they 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 take this uh, uh, this call uh, to heed and and act accordingly. If not, we'll continue to uh, to address that need and and ensure that again public safety, public interest are things that are prioritized. Well, I've come to know you pretty well over the last couple of years. I know you're not giving up. <laughs> you won't. Uh, you're going to hang on to this and, and stick with it. We'll stay in touch, Kojo, as this, and hopefully we'll talk to the ministry about this as well. Uh, stay healthy, stay well, and uh, we'll stay in touch. Thanks for this today. Thank you. Take care. Kojo Dampy, of course, manager programs for the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML.
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.